Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. So before we dive into the book of Nahum, chapter 2 here, uh, let's open up with a word of prayer, and because we always want the Holy Spirit to, to guide us as we open his word and teach us all things. So Lord, we just come before you right now. We thank you, Father, so much for this book, and Lord, all that you have for us in it from Genesis 1-1 all the way to Revelation 22. God, we thank you for preserving your word, that there's nothing else that we need, that, Lord, you, you have it for us. And, God, that you, in a mighty way, have preserved it throughout all of history despite the constant attack to dismantle it, to discredit it, to push it aside, to bury it, to keep it out of the hands of your people. And, God, we just thank you for preserving it and giving it to us so that today we continue to build our faith and to stand strong for you as we look at the, the end times ahead. And God, we pray that you would teach us everything out of your word this morning. Be with us and anoint this place and let your teacher, your anointing of your Holy Spirit be here with us, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so remember, as we're opening up the, the word of God, we always want to lean on the Holy Spirit as the anointing to teach us everything from 1 John 2, 27 and 28. And we also want to make sure that one of the, one of the keys for us as Christians is, you know, the Lord has given us the guidebook for everything. He's given us the Bible. He's given us the word of God for everything in our journey through life and on this walk that we have with him, on this journey of between now and eternity, right, as we continue this path, well, there's going to come a point when there's a shout from 1 Thessalonians 4, a shout that's going to take us home in, in the rapture. And whether that happens in our lifetimes or not, you have to walk through life expecting it at any moment so that if it does happen, you have confidence at his appearing, from 1 John 2.28. You don't want him to have the shout and then you're, you're like the five of the ten virgins that didn't have the oil in the lamp and you're running around looking for something, to, for an anointing, uh, something from the Holy Spirit to offer Jesus, right? You want to surrender your life now so that you have something to offer him on the other side of this as an inheritance and a reward. And so you have to, if you haven't, if you've never done this in your life, you need to spend time every single day in the word of God and get into it and let the word of God just wash over you and cleanse you and renew your mind, right, from Ephesians with the washing of the water of the word and to go over your life. And as you do that, he will begin to wash things away that you didn't even know needed to be washed away. A lot of us live as, as Christians, you live kind of in a in a state almost of you're so used to a certain standard of living 
that you don't really realize there are things that are wrong, that you need to correct and surrender to him, and that he has something deeper for you, a deeper level of relationship, a deeper level of intimacy and commitment, a stronger walk. And then you start opening up his word and getting into it daily, and you realize there is a lot there's a lot I need to get rid of to get closer to him. And all of us are a work in progress. So it's a constant act. That's why Acts 17.11, you have to do it daily. You've got to be in the word daily. So just keep that in mind. You know, it's, it's just so important because it's the only way we can build our faith. And so when you see everything that's going on in the world around you, you know, you need the shield of faith. But you also, faith, the sword of the spirit, is your offensive weapon. So you've got to be in in the word for defense and offense so that you don't get taken, taken out by the enemy. Okay, remember last time we, when we opened up Nahum, remember Nicodemus and these people came to Jesus and they, they had no idea that prophets came out of Galilee. And it's in John 7, 50 through 53. Look at verse 52 there. They answered and said to him, Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. So remember, Jonah and Nahum both came out of Galilee, and both were commissioned to prophesy over Nineveh. And so that individual in John 7, he's sitting there speaking to the creator of the universe, and he didn't even know the word that Jesus had prepared for him, right? Kind of going along the theme that I talked about at the beginning here. He didn't know. No prophets ever come out of Galilee. What are you talking about, Jesus? Are you of Galilee? And he had no idea because he hadn't been studying God's word. And, and he, was, he was there speaking to the word, right? In the beginning was the word. And so Nineveh was prophesied both by Jonah and Nahum. And Jonah prophesied over Nineveh and the entire nation repented. Remember, we looked at that kind of in detail last week and turned to the Lord. Nahum was approximately 100 to 150 years after Jonah. So if you remember, Jonah had a very difficult calling. The Israelites hated the Assyrians, they despised them. They were wicked, barbaric people that slaughtered their enemies, made a show of them. They lined roads with the impaled bodies of, their, of who they defeated all along. And so as a warning, right, to those other nations that would think about standing up against them, they were just brutal, brutal people. And so Jonah's message, remember, if you remember Jonah, he did not want to deliver that message. He Remember, he said, Lord, if I go and tell them, you're going to forgive them, and they're going to turn to you. And he was bitter about it. And then after it happened, remember, he sits under that tree in sorrow for it. See, Lord, I told you. I told you they would turn to you. And God is sitting there going, what is your problem? I mean, here an entire city just repented and turned to me and got saved and born again. And you're sitting here crying about it. You know, it was, uh, my wife and I were talking this weekend when you look at everything that's going on, it's easy to be a Jonah, right? It's easy to look at what's going on in the world and what's going on against the boar, against children, uh, even in our schools and churches all over the world. You get outside of North America and how bad it is, the attack on the church and just people being persecuted for the word of God, children being attacked and taken. It's easy to sit here and be a Jonah, right, of, of Lord, where's the judgment? Where is it? Because we need it. 
We need you just to step in and just wipe everybody out. And let's just start over with those that love you. And, but that's not the right attitude to have, right? Those are, those are people that have an eternity somewhere. And God is fighting for their salvation just as much as, as anyone else. So, and remember from Romans, right? Vengeance is mine, declareth the Lord. So it's not, it's not our place, but he will take care of it. But in any case, Jonah's message, remember, is very brief. It was only eight words. Is very to the point, and it's in Jonah 3, verse 3. So Jonah arose and went, starting in verse 3, and went into Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. Remember, that's talking about the circumference of the city. It was probably about 50 to 70 miles in circumference. That would take about three days to circle around and to give this message in verse 4. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey. So he's one day into the city. And he cried and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And remember, we talked about uh, 40 days from when, and there's probably a dual meaning to his prophecy, that after 40 days, they would turn to God, but after another 40 days, they would be totally destroyed. So he delivers this prophetic message. And remember from the geographical location, Nineveh was in, is in modern-day Iraq on the very northern part along the Tigris River. Uh, these people in Nineveh that Nahum is commissioned to were the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren of the people that completely repented and turned to God just three generations before. So again, it's easy to think about from the 40s, the 1940s, to where we are today. It's about that time span, just roughly, a little further. So think about how much worse our nation will be in about a decade if, it, if we continue down this path. Okay, think about that. That's about the span of time of these people that had totally repented, given their lives to the Lord, were serving him. And think about all the things the nation, our nation, did back in the 40s and winning World War II and going and sacrificing ourselves for the benefit of God's people to, to, to fight for Israel all the way to where we are now, how far gone we are. It's just not that far of a stretch to think about the people in Nineveh from where they repented to th three generations later being in that same situation. So if you remember, uh, those are some, some pictures or some hieroglyphics of, in carvings on ancient tablets of the Assyrians, how they would behead people when they, when they would t conquer them. And they just were a horrible, horrible people, but God loved them and had a call on their lives. So imagine, I always think about this too, what would have happened to the, the nation of Assyria had the people that repented in Jonah's day taught that to their children and grandchildren and that nation grew up worshiping God and serving him. I mean, just imagine how their destiny would have been so different. And because right now you can't find Assyria on a map, it doesn't exist. Uh, that nation went into utter destruction. But Nahum has a very simple outline. So we looked at chapter one last week in terms of the proclamation on who, God's intervention, the disaster for his enemies, but at the same time, it's a dual purpose of deliverance for his people. In chapter two, it was it, that we're gonna look at today, it's how is God going to wipe out Nineveh? It's an invasion, a day of looting, and a den of lions, and God uses that analogy. Chapter three, to finish the book, is why is he doing this? So who, how, and why? So why is he doing it? Because of the inhumanity of the nation, the conquest by force that they 
partook of all the time, and then the corruption by finance. And you see this even how today, we've talked about this before, but the corruption by finance, it's amazing how many nations go astray and people go astray that look to the world and finances as a source of strength and provision. Think about in Egypt in in the Exodus event. Okay, every single one of those 10 plagues was against a God that the Egyptians worshiped. And one of them against the cattle that's why when they are delivered out of Egypt and they're 48 hours in the wilderness, they fashion a golden calf. It was probably, really probably a golden ox that they fashioned or a bull. But that's one of the faces of Satan. Remember he, the cherubim that surround the throne of God? The eagle, the man, the lion, and the calf or the ox or the bull, whatever you want to call it, cattle. And Satan always tries to get you to think that your provision is through the world and that finance system. And that's why they were worshiping that. And remember what they said to Moses when he came down? But look, this is what delivered us out of Egypt. It was our source of provision. And Moses is going, what in the world? How far gone are you in 48 hours? I mean, we were looking at the Red Sea parting and swallowing God's enemies just two days ago. And here you are. And remember, he melts it down and makes them drink it from a straw, that dust. But anyway, you can learn a lot by that. And and that corruption by finance And Satan trying to be the source is why on Wall Street we have a golden bull, right? It's that same, that root is in the same spot. It goes all the way back to the Exodus event. It's amazing. Okay, so to open up Nahum chapter 2 here, verse 1, He that dasheth in pieces is come up before thy face. Keep the munition, watch the way, make thy loins strong, fortify thy power mightily. Okay, so there's a play on words to open up chapter 2 here. The Lord is using he that dasheth in pieces has come to visit you, Nineveh. So remember, he's speaking to Nineveh. Now, there's only one other place in the Bible that that phrase is used, he that dasheth in pieces. And it's speaking of Jesus in Psalms 2. So remember, Psalms 2 is the dialogue of the Trinity between the Holy Spirit, the Father, and the Son, And they're sitting around and you get an insight into the three of them having a conversation in Psalms 2. Well, in Psalms 2 verse 9, remember what the Lord says to Jesus, Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And surely Jesus fulfills that in the millennium when he comes back at Armageddon, sets up the millennial kingdom for a thousand years. But that is the he that shall dash them in pieces. Okay, so you can see the connection. And as a result, the Lord is sarcastically telling them, go ahead and fortify all you want, but it's not going to help. It's, exact, it's kind of the same flavor as, remember uh, Pilate speaking to the people of Jesus' tomb. Go ahead and seal it and make it as sure as you can. See, Pilate, don't be surprised if you meet Pilate in heaven because he, he wanted nothing to do with the crucifixion of Jesus. Remember, his wife has the dreams. Uh, remember, he even, he, he knows that he crucified the Son of God. He knew it. And that's why he sarcastically told the Roman soldiers, go ahead and, and seal the tomb as, as sure as you can. That guy's not staying in there. He's coming out. Whether you like it or not, I don't care what seal you put on it, he's going to roll that stone away and walk right out. He knew exactly what was going to happen. That's why he washed his hands and said, his blood be on your hands, not on mine. 
And the Jews, remember how foolishly they were? Uh, bring it. We'll take his blood on our hands. We want to kill him. And they, that was a big mistake. But anyway, so the Lord sitting here is telling Nineveh, hey, go ahead, keep the munition, watch the way, make thy loins strong, and fortify thy power mightily. Go ahead and gird up as much as you want. I'm coming up before you, and your day is numbered. So again, it's, it's kind of God's final warning for them. Okay, in verse 2, For the Lord hath turned away the excellency of Jacob as the excellency of Israel. For the emptiers have emptied them out and marred their vine branches. Okay, the word vine, you can find this all over the Bible, but the word vine appears 62 times in 58 verses in the Bible. It's, you, you all know from John, we're going to look at that in a second, but Jesus is the vine, we are the branches. Remember he talks about that? But look at Jeremiah 2, verse 21. Yet I had planted thee a noble vine, a holy, a right seed. How then art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? Remember, he's speaking to Israel. He wanted Israel to be the vine, and the branches coming off the vine, to be fruitful for the entire world. But instead, from Jeremiah 2, they turned into a de degenerate plant. That, is, that would be a horrible thing for the Lord to come to you and say, Matt, you've turned into a de degenerate plant and your family is awful. What are you doing? Why are you rebelling against me? Nobody wants to hear that, but they heard that. Israel, that was a message to Israel. So the vine, so look at what he's saying here in Nahum verse 2. The emptiers have emptied them out and marred their vine branches. Okay, what he's saying is the Assyrians have come and, they've, and they have been so against Israel, they've marred their vine branches. Even though Israel had, had turned away from the Lord, they still, people were taking advantage of them from that situation. Okay, look at John 15. One of, this is a famous discourse from the Lord, but starting in verse 1. I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Okay, that is a, a message that goes right in line with the sanctification process of what I was kind of talking about at the beginning. Okay, every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. You know, you have a mission. The Lord saved you for a purpose. One of the greatest things you can do in your life is to figure out what that purpose is. Now, it's obviously to serve him, but he has a call on your life. There's every single person that the Lord saves and that turns to him, he has a mission for. So don't ever take that for granted. It could be as simple as just living for him in whatever your place of employment, your family, growing up godly children, and leading them in the Lord. It could be that simple. All of us have that call. But it might be something radical and crazy like, hey, start a church in the middle of the global shutdown. I have no idea. Whatever That was the, that was the call that he had on, on some of us here. And he may have something like that for you, but he has a mission for you. Think about Revelation 3. Remember, if you do not repent, I will come quickly and remove your lampstand. There comes a point where if you ignore him and you live in willful sin long enough, that that mission, that door will start to close because he can't trust you with it. 
And so it's a call to stewardship. Remember, one of my favorite, uh, one of the Ten Commandments is, Thou shalt not take the Lord thy God's name in vain. He will not hold them guiltless who takes his name in vain. That has to do with taking on the name of the king and not doing anything with it. So you are, it's, it's not about your vocabulary and cussing. It's about thou shall not take the name of the Lord. Don't take his name and be a Christian and take it in vain. Don't, do any, don't bury it. Remember the parable of the talents, the, the one that had one talent and just buried it and did nothing with it? That's that he was going against that commandment, okay, that he took the Lord's name in vain. He did nothing with it. So every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it or prunes it. So when we were studying this in Hebrews, remember, whom the father chastens, he loves as a legitimate child. So when you are in your walk with the Lord, there's always going to be something that the Lord is going to be working you, working on with you and correcting you and shaping you and molding you. It never stops until you get on the other side of this. But he prunes you. He wants to cut off the dead branches so that fresh branches and fruit can be brought forth. That's why does he do it? Look at John 15, verse 2, that it may bring forth more fruit. So even you might be a great steward, bearing a ton of fruit, walking with the Lord, but there's going to be times in your life that he comes in and prunes something or a trial comes up, right? Something bad hits, whether it's your family, in the church, a relationship, whatever it is. And out of that, as you continue to lean on him, more fruit will be brought forth and then more fruit. And then as he begins to trust you more, he will empower you more with a broader voice, maybe a different mission. He might take you somewhere else. So it's just, it's about a relationship. And the Lord, the Lord is shepherding a family, just like all of us in here with kids, just like we're doing. Now you are clean through the world, the word which I have spoken unto you. Nobody's clean through the world. I misspoke. You're clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Again, remember the washing of the renewing of the mind. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine. No more can ye except ye abide in me. As long as you abide in the Lord, that is the only place where you can bring forth fruit of the Spirit. You have to be abiding in him. You can't run astray. Remember, think about the prodigal son ran astray. He never lost his sonship, but he blew his inheritance. Okay, that's the difference. He was always a legitimate son, but he brought forth no fruit in rebellion and running away. It wasn't until he turned back, remember, then the, the father celebrated and made a feast and welcomed him home. That's what the Lord does when anytime you turn back to him. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me ye can do nothing, nothing. You can do nothing outside of God. Okay, in verse 3, the shield of his mighty men is made red. The valiant men are in scarlet. The chariots shall be flaming with flaming torches in the day of his preparation, and the fir trees shall be terribly shaken. So this is amazing in verse 3 here. The Lord even gives details of the colored shields and clothing in his prophecy for those that are attacking Nineveh. It's so vivid. 
And this picture here on the right, this is an ancient uh, rendition or a painting of the battle at Nineveh. And look, sure enough, what the attackers are wearing, scarlet. And so you see this, the shield of his mighty men is made red. The valiant men are in scarlet. So they're wearing scarlet, scarlet clothing. And the Lord even details that out for who's going to take out Nineveh. And it's amazing. A couple other pictures I found, I didn't put them all in here, but they all showed that, that they were wearing scarlet clothing. And the battle looked pretty intense. Okay, verse 4 here. The chariots shall rage in the streets. They shall jostle one against another in the broad ways. They shall seem like torches. They shall run like the lightnings. So the devastation of this city that's gigantic with all of these homes and these streets. Remember, they had crops everywhere. The devastation would be so severe that the chariots would have wide open spaces to run through. You know, all of a sudden, it's going to be like the Autobahn inside Nineveh. It's just going to be wiped clear. They can go as fast as they want and go any which way. Almost like the invading armies would travel so quickly through the city and scatter about so wildly. It's like a, setting a torch in a field, a dry field, and it just taking off and going different directions. That's what the devastation would be like, according to the Lord. He shall recount his worthies. They shall stumble in their walk. They shall make haste to the wall thereof, and the defense shall be prepared. So Nineveh was going to be pummeled and just stumbling around. And the invading armies, what they did was, remember, it sits on the Tigris River. They diverted part of the Tigris River to wipe out the foundation of one of the outer walls. So one of the outer walls that was along the Tigris they diverted the river, the invading armies, and it, it undermined the foundation of the wall, and the wall crumbled and came down so that the invading army could just walk right in. Nineveh viewed the walls as their, as their security. It was something they built. You know, and how often it is that we in our lives look at something that we've built or done as our source of safety and security, right? It's so often and all it takes is one storm to come in and wipe out that foundation. It just all crumbles down and makes a way for the attack. You can't look at anything that you build in your life as something of security. The Lord is the only place for security. Now, he can entrust a lot of different things in your life that you can have that will foster security and be a source of provision, but that source is him, not what has been built. I hope that makes sense. So the, the walls, they looked at them, the Ninevites looked at them as totally impenetrable. They were, they were the best walls you could build, right? We talked about how big they were last time, that you could race three chariots on them on top. They had inner walls, they had outer walls, and the gates, look at verse 6 here in Nahum, the gates of the river shall be opened and the palace shall be dissolved. Now, to dissolve something, it has to sit in water. And so even in the language, the Lord is saying, hey, those gates and that wall, they will be dissolved because we're going to divert the Tigris River here. And Nineveh took a lot of pride in that security. They had built these walls and they, they were impenetrable and no army could conquer them. But the world 
quickly diverted and that security became worthless. And just think about in the most recent example, right, in 2020, everything that the church looked to for security, the Lord tore down in an instant. So if you were looking to Wall Street, well, let me take that out of the way. If you're looking to your career, okay, you're going to stay home for a little bit. Uh, if you're looking to entertainment, well, let me shut that down for a little bit. You know, there are all these different things that the world was looking to that the Lord just tore down. And the same thing will happen after the rapture, frankly. When the rapture happens, everything the world was looking to for security will be absolutely taken away. Okay, verse 7 here. And Hazab shall be led away captive. She shall be brought up, and her maids shall lead her as with the voice of doves, tabering upon their breasts. So the Jewish, this word Hazab, if you look this up, Jewish scholars believe that was the name of the queen of Nineveh at the time of the city's destruction. Other scholars, secular scholars, believe the word simply means established. So you can kind of go either way here. But the Hebrew word, it's used 75 times in 75 verses in the Bible. And it is often translated as established, set up, to set, stand, stood, upright, etc. It's used, for example, in Genesis 35 verse 20. And Jacob set a pillar upon her grave. That is the pillar of Rachel's grave unto this day. That word set is that Hebrew word. So in either case, the city is going to be led away captive. Whether it means the established city shall be led away captive and shall be brought up, or the queen. If the queen's led away captive, it's a good bet that the city is also led away captive. So in either case, it fits. But just to give you both perspectives there. In verse 8, but Nineveh is of old like a pool of water, yet they shall flee away, stand, stand, shall they cry, but none shall look back. Okay, the pool of water, this is, again, the Lord's referring to the diverted part of the Tigris River because it not only destroyed the wall and undermined the foundation, but most of the city was flooded with some amount of water sitting on the floor. So it literally became a pool of water. Take ye the spoil of silver, take the spoil of gold, for there is none end of the store and glory out of all the pleasant furniture. So Nineveh was very wealthy. There seemed to, frankly, be no end of their riches. They were plundered out of that city, all of those riches. It took, it took a long time for all the gold and the silver to be taken out of the city, they had so much. So that's why the Lord in verse 9 is saying, for there is none end of the store and glory out of all the pleasant furniture. So it seemed to just keep coming, the, the, the loot, as they were looting through the city. Okay, they lived very lavishly, and they trusted in the riches of the world. It's a pretty simple application for us. And if you remember from Revelation 2 and 3, the seven letters to the seven churches, the way Jesus penned those letters, each one of them from the church at Ephesus through the church of Laodicea is written by the Lord in the order, and that order in which they are written lays out the history of the church in advance. Each letter profiles a history or an era of the church. So from Ephesus all the way through to the church of Laodicea, where we are today, the church of Laodicea, the lukewarm church that, that Jesus really has nothing good to say about. And when you look around at, 
at a lot of the churches and what they teach all over the world, um, it's pretty easy to see why we are at that point. And we don't have to go into details. I think all of you know where we're going with that. But look what Jesus says in Revelation 3, verse 17. Because thou sayest, speaking of the church of Laodicea, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. See, he says that to the church, and he was saying it at the time in Nahum to Nineveh. They are rich and in need of nothing. That's what the, the thought process was that they had. They were taking the, the posture of, I don't need God. Look at all this wealth that we have. This is my security. This is my source of provision. This is, this is where I get my strength from. And the Lord says that to the church of Laodicea. You've got to, you need to buy the eye slab from me to put on and drop the scales off your eyes. If you remember that whole letter of the church of Laodicea. Okay, in verse 10, she is empty and void and waste, and the heart meldeth, and the knees smite together, and much pain is in all loins, and the faces of them all gather blackness. So the people are going to tremble at the invading armies and shake. Now look at Psalms 147, verse 18. He sendeth out his word and melteth them, and he causeth his wind to blow, and the waters flow. Okay, the heart melteth. When the Lord sends out his word and, the, and judgment comes down, hearts of people tend, the Lord uses that language a lot, they tend to melt. You know, they tend to be fearful. Fear sets in. They start to look away and their faces grow dim, right? There's no hope anymore. God's judgment is here. Remember in Luke, Jesus said, uh, men's hearts failing them, looking for what's coming upon the earth. And he goes through that, that whole discourse. It's that same concept in the tribulation that men's hearts are going to fail them when they're looking at the judgment coming upon the earth. Okay, the knees shaking together. If you, you can track this down all through the Bible, but the knees smite together in verse 10. One of my favorite one in Daniel 5, 6. So if you remember after Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel, his grandson, Belteshazzar, um, throws that, that feast and he uses all the, the instruments and the cups from the temple that they looted in Israel and they blaspheme God. And it's that night, that very night that Babylon is destroyed from within, from Persia. Remember, Persia comes through the city gates. Uh, they divert part of the Euphrates and dry up the river and they sneak in under the wall and they take the city it took some of the residents of Babylon at that time more than three months to even know they were captured. That's how big that city was. But they came in and they, and they killed uh, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, and Cyrus took the city. Cyrus was a general for Persia. Well, Cyrus is prophesied throughout Isaiah. In Isaiah 45.1, God calls him out by name. This is written 150 years in advance before Cyrus was even born. And God calls him out by name. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him. And look at what God prophesies. I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two levied gates, and the gates shall not be shut. Loose the loins of kings. Okay, that's, that's a very quaint way for you have an upset stomach. Okay, is what the Lord is saying here. Now, when you go to Daniel 5, verse 6, 
this is the fulfillment of it. Okay, this is Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. When the invasion, after the handwriting on the wall, remember the handwriting on the wall comes out, the Lord's hand at the banquet, and the Lord writes, many, many tekla upharsin, and it's, he writes it backwards, and it's a, it's a code. It's, a, it's, a, it's an encrypted code that only Daniel could interpret. Remember, the king's countenance changed, so he sees the hand come out and write that on the wall, and then the king's countenance was changed, and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his loins were loosed, and his knees smote one against the, another. So he, he literally... Uh, he had an upset stomach at seeing that, and uh, it turned, and his knees smote together. You know, you see that in cartoons a lot with the knees that rattled together. It's kind of like that, but the Lord had prophesied that all the way back in Isaiah 45, verse 1, and then, of course, they bring Daniel out of the prison because they knew he could interpret it, and he comes and reads it, many, many teklo upharsin, basically, uh, your days are up and numbered, and tonight your kingdom is taken from your hand, and sure enough, that night is when Cyrus came in and conquered Babylon and took it. So the knees smoting together. You don't, you don't want to be in that situation either. And verse 11 here in Nahum, where is the dwelling of the loins and the feeding place of the young lions where the lion, even the old lion, walked and the lions whelp and none made them afraid. So the Lord's comparing the people of Nineveh to lions here. And in verse 12, the lion did tear in pieces enough for his whelps and strangled for his lionesses and filled his holes with prey and his dens with raven. Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will burn her chariots in the smoke and the sword shall devour thy young lions. And I will cut off thy prey from the earth and the voice of thy messengers shall, be, shall no more be heard. So the lions, Nineveh, who used to hunt, kill, prey, take prey, kill prey, and take it back for their children and their wives, will no longer occupy, even to the point that their voice will be no more. And it's interesting how up until modern times, people thought Nineveh was a made-up city. Uh, historians thought it was a, like a, some kind of folklore, magical place, I guess, like Narnia. Uh, they thought it didn't exist because it was wiped out so utterly, completely that, I think I mentioned this last week, Alexander the Great, when he was conquering the Middle East, he walked right over it and didn't even know it was a city. The rubble was so buried and destroyed. And literally, God took the voice of them that they were heard no more. So do you see how even in the subtlety of, of God's message here and his prophetic word, that it's fulfilled that way, that they are, their voice was never heard again. Now, this last phrase in verse 13, it's the last verse of chapter 2 here. Behold, I am against thee. Okay, that is, a, that is a phrase that I hope none of us are ever on the receiving end of from the Lord. Behold, I am against thee. That's, you're in a bad spot at that point. When the Lord says, behold, I am against thee. <laughs> now, if you're born again, he's not going to say that to you necessarily. He may say, hey, I'm disappointed in you. Let's talk about this. Uh, but behold, I am against thee. It's used a hundred times in the Bible. And that exact phrase is used in 14 verses. And again, you don't want to be on the receiving end of it. 
in that situation. But look at Jeremiah 21, 13. Behold, I am against thee, O inhabitant of the valley and rock of the plain, saith the Lord, which say, who shall come down against us? Or who shall enter into our habitations? Isn't it amazing that that's the exact same stance that the world takes about the return of Jesus? Who's going to come down against us? Who, who shall take a, take a stand against our habitation? Okay, well, Jesus will, and they're not going to like the outcome. But it's amazing how that attitude that God is just going to let sin continue forever, it's not just a modern attitude. That's been around forever, since the very beginning. You see it there in Jeremiah 21. Look at Jeremiah 50, verse 31. Behold, I am against thee, O thou most proud, saith the Lord God of hosts, for thy day is come, the time that I will visit thee. Okay, that's the Lord is going to say that exact same thing to the earth dwellers in the tribulation. The time of thy visitation has come. I, I'm going to visit thee. Look at Jeremiah 51, verse 25. Behold, I am against thee, O destroying mountain, saith the Lord, which destroyeth all the earth. And I will stretch out mine hand upon thee and roll thee down from the rocks. And I will make thee a burnt mountain. Boy, that's amazing. He's speaking of, of Babylon at that time in Jeremiah 50 and 51. The future Babylon, actually, that's during the tribulation. Look at Ezekiel 21, verse 3. And say to the land of Israel, thus saith the Lord, behold, I am against thee. And I will draw forth my sword out of his sheath, and I will cut off from thee the righteous and the wicked. Okay, he's speaking to Israel there. That's, that was a bad spot in their history. If you remember, that led to the Babylonian captivity. In Ezekiel 26, verse 3, Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Tyrus, and I will cause many nations to come up against thee, and the sea causeth his waves to come up. Now Tyre and Tyrus... In Ezekiel 26, uh, it's pretty amazing. They were north of Israel, about 50 miles in modern-day Lebanon along the coast. They thought that, like Nineveh, they thought they were impenetrable and they couldn't be defeated. In fact, they went offshore and built a, a new Tyre or a new city of Tyre on an island. And what happened, they thought they were the greatest uh, seafarers in the world at that time. And they made trade by sea all over the world. In fact, they traded tin with uh, what we call Great Britain today or Tarshish. Around, they would go around through the Mediterranean, around the coasts of Europe, modern-day Europe, to the island of Britain and trade in tin. Well, they, they thought that they could never be conquered because they did everything by sea. They had the world's greatest navy, and they were very, very prideful about it. And they were against Israel. Long story short, in Ezekiel 26, God prophesies that that island will be wiped out because of a causeway. And sure enough, Alexander the Great, when he comes through, he, just, he takes all of the rubble of the old city, pushes it into the ocean, into the Mediterranean, and builds a land bridge to the island. And his armies march across that land bridge and take over the island and totally destroy the city of Tyre. That's what God thought about the pride that had set in and their, their disdain for Israel, just like the Assyrians and the Ninevites that were studying in Nahum. Okay, Ezekiel 28, verse 22, And say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Zidon, 
and I'll be glorified in the midst of thee, and they shall know that I am the Lord. It's so often whenever God does this that he's doing it for that phrase all the time, that they shall know that I am the Lord. And again, that's one of my favorite titles of Jesus, I am. Remember, the the gospel of John is built around seven I am statements of Jesus. I am the door, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, I am the bread of life, I am, you go down the, all of them, that whole gospel, I am. Remember what he tells Abraham from the, or uh, Moses, I should say, from the burning bush, when Moses says, who should I tell them sent me? And he says, tell them I am that I am. And there was the voice of Jesus speaking to him out of the burning bush. And you go all the way to when Jesus in John tells them before Abraham was, I am. See, he's claiming to be the voice of the burning bush all the way back to Moses. And that's why they picked up stones to kill him. But it's so that they shall know that I am the Lord. That's, the, that's a great title of Jesus. In Ezekiel 29 verse 3, speak and say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lieth in the midst of his rivers, which hath said, My river is mine own, and I have made it for myself. Isn't that amazing, too, how the world, the Lord does not worship the creator, but the creation. And they don't worship the one that formed the, God, the earth and the rivers. They think that somehow the creation should be worshiped. And they did it. It's for their own good. Okay, Ezekiel 38, verse 3, and say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. Now, that's in Ezekiel 38 and 39. That's the Gog and Magog battle that's yet future. It's a prophetic battle where Russia, modern-day Russia, and Turkey and Iran band together, and they come down to try to, to, try to plunder Israel, essentially, to take spoil because they become very wealthy after the Psalms battle, Psalms 83 battle. Um, But God is against him, against them, O Gog. Now, Gog is a demon title also. You can check that out from Amos 7, verse 1, uh, but you've got to go into the, the root of the Greek to find it. Okay, therefore thou, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. So he says it again. In Ezekiel 39, verse 1. Okay, let's pray that God does not have this posture toward our nation, right? We do not want to be as a nation in a situation where God says, Behold, I'm against you, United States of America. We do not want that posture. We, we need a revival desperately in this nation. We need the Lord to raise up men and women that are Holy Spirit-filled, born again, into places of office, all the way down to the local level, right? The city council, the school boards, uh, the mayors, the state senators, congressmen, whoever, all the way then up into the federal level in the White House. We need a, we need a major turn in this nation. And so my challenge for all of you is to please, please pray for our nation. Uh, we, are, we are one of the last beacons of hope in the, in the world, frankly. And for a long time, we were the chief exporter of missionaries all over the world as a nation. And now we've, we've gone so far astray that a lot of the, the countries around the world send missionaries to us. And so the tide has kind of started to turn some. 
And it's frankly, it's, it's because of the church. You know, we as the church, we've got to rise up and get right with the Lord and be prepared as an unadulterated bride looking for Jesus to take us home. Because as long as we have that posture, then you'll live a life sanctified to him. When you know that any moment you can hear the trumpet, that sound that's going to just ripple around the world, and we're going to be out of here in the blink of an eye when our resurrected bodies. It gives you, what's beautiful about the rapture is it gives you purpose for how you should live now. And it's, a lot of people want to debate if it's in the Bible or not. We've, I could give you uh, a thousand verses. I mean, a little sarcastic, maybe like 900. 900 verses that, that prove out the rapture as a doctrine in the Bible. And it's not just 1 Thessalonians 4. It's actually in the Old Testament several spots as well. Uh, Enoch was raptured before the flood of Noah. Remember that. Uh, Jesus in Revelation says, I will save you from the very time of trouble that's going to come upon the whole world. And so to save you from the time, you have to be outside of time, right? Time is a function of mass, gravity, and acceleration. So for you to be saved from the time, you have to be massless outside of time from physics. And the only way to get there is for the Lord to bring you there on the other side. That's one of the reasons why, you know, if you are here and you're not born again, if you're watching this and not born again, that's one of the very proofs that you are eternal because the real you has no mass. You, you are not bound to time, the real you. The real you is eternal, and that's the problem, whether you like it or not. But we as, as the church have got to stand up. We have got to push back because if the light retreats, darkness takes and seizes that, that ground, right? Where light retreats, darkness fills the void. Where light steps in, darkness has to retreat and move out. There's never a situation where you turn on a light switch in the room and that light bulb, even if it lights up, that the room doesn't, the darkness doesn't flee, right? There's never a situation. I've never turned on a light bulb and set in a dark room still. It's that, that's the principle is that the light has to move in so that the darkness will take back a back seat and retreat. And the darkness, if you haven't noticed, is uh, pretty prevalent today all around. Uh, the darkness wants our children. The darkness wants our schools. The darkness wants your relationship with the Lord. The darkness wants your marriage. Uh, the darkness wants to take you off track. And just like the New Testament says, Satan roams around as a lion, seeking whom he may devour. So the key is the key there is whom he may. You want to make sure you're not a whom he may. And how do you make sure of that? Well, you stand up and you live a life of service to the king. And you be dedicated to him. And you get on your knees and you pray daily. Lift up our nation. Lift up your family. Lift up your marriages. Get into the word of God and get serious about a walk with him because we all need to watch. Remember Jesus told us so many times through the gospels, watch therefore, take ye heed and watch and pray, watch. And I say, what I say unto you, I say unto all, watch. We've got to be watchmen on the wall like from Ezekiel and warn the people and warn those that don't know him. Get into the ark now because time is of the essence. Okay, if you're here, if you're not born again, or if you're watching this online, 
I just, I pray that you will surrender your life today to the Lord. It's the greatest thing you can do to get on your knees and to instantaneously confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he was raised from the dead and that you will be gathered to him. It's the greatest thing you'll ever do. And you will instantaneously be born again in the spirit and never be the same, I promise. So if you're here, if you need help with that, if you have a loved one that you wanna pray for about that, if you have a friend, anything, we are here to help. So just come see one of us afterwards. And what happens in that moment is that all of your sin is turned from scarlet to white as snow. It's forgiven judiciously. The Lord stamps your file uh, paid in full and he just puts it in the file cabinet and it's never to be brought up again. Hallelujah, it's amazing. So Lord, we just thank you so much for this time together. We pray that God, you would be with us as we leave this place. God, I pray that you would give each of us Give each of us discernment and light our way on what you have for our lives as a call. And Lord, we pray that we would be serious about your business and that we would look to you for everything. We love you. We honor you, Lord. We thank you for this time together. God, we do pray for our nation and we pray that you would lift up and raise up men and women that are born again and dedicated to you to fill every office from the city and local levels all the way up to the White House and every office in between. God, we need righteousness to rule in this land again. And your promise from 2 Chronicles 7:14 is that if your people who are called by your name will humble themselves, pray, fast, and seek forgiveness, then you will hear us from heaven you will turn and you will pour out your spirit and heal our land. And God, we are doing that right now. As your people, we lift up this nation and we pray for a great revival from coast to coast and from the south to the north. God, let this nation be a beacon of light, a beacon of light out to the world yet again that the Lord looks to, that the world looks to, to hear your word and as a place of refuge, like a light on the hill. We love you and we thank you for it in advance, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.